A crucial week's ahead for Congress. Democrats say they'll go to reconciliation to pass a $6 trillion package if Republicans don't go along, as regular government operations are likely to head to a continuing resolution. We get the latest from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, let's talk first about that infrastructure, whatever that means, package. And what's likely to happen? This is coming to a head, isn't it? It really is. And it's amazing the amount of money that we're talking about, potentially up to $6 trillion that Senate Democrats are now considering. This would essentially be their plan B if the much more modest, roughly $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan fails to move forward. That plan currently has enough Republican support, by the way, more than 10 GOP lawmakers to move ahead in the Senate. But as you know, there are a lot of progressive Democrats who are complaining it doesn't go far enough. They want to go big and bold. I spoke with Virginia Senator Mark Warner, who's a more moderate Democrat last week, and he raised concerns about progressives trashing the bipartisan plan that he's been a part of. So as for the $6 trillion plan, it would essentially fold together the two parts of President Biden's American Jobs Plan and the American Family Plan. The Jobs Plan is the one that more closely aligns to what Republicans want, which is roads, bridges, water, that type of thing, whereas the American Family plan goes much broader in a variety of directions, including uh, daycare, pre-K, also talk about expanding Medicare. Many Democrats uh, say that they are considering actually trying to expand Medicare to to drop it down to uh, the age of 60 for eligibility. But uh, many of the more moderate Democrats still have a lot of doubts about the cost of this. So we'll have to see where it goes, because for them to get the 50 votes they need for reconciliation is still pretty much a work in progress. Well, I think the administration understands that when it comes to infrastructure, daycare and Medicare don't need environmental impact statements. Right, exactly. They can actually get built, (laughs) unlike, say, the widening of 270 or something here in the D.C. area. And uh, that could be tied up for the next 20 years. So what would happen then if the talks break down, then there would be a reconciliation type of vote. But if all of the Democrats aren't in favor of it in the $6 trillion form, then maybe that wouldn't pass either. Right. It's sort of a situation where politically be careful what you're wishing for, because frankly, a lot of uh, Democrats on the progressive side would like the bipartisan talks to just sort of fall apart. And then they would say, "Okay, now we really only have one choice. We have to go to reconciliation. But a lot of other Democrats, and I also talked to Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, He's still waiting on whether or not this bipartisan plan will come through. But he, along with others, basically say, we've got to have this reconciliation plan in our back pocket. Now, saying you have it in your back pocket is one thing. Actually getting it passed, as you said, is a much different thing. I mean, there's been a ton of talk, of course, around West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin and what he would do. But also more quietly behind the scenes, there are a lot of senators still that have some questions about a lot of these proposals that are bundled into this $6 trillion package and whether it would actually be $6 trillion. So they are going to have to get all 50 of them on board if they're to have any chance to get it through. And then and there are some questions still lingering more deeper in the weeds about what the parliamentarian in the Senate would say in connection with some of these proposals. But right now, it's basically what they're saying is a two-track process. They want to try to see if this bipartisan plan, if, it, if it'll work. And if it doesn't, then Democrats say they'll go to reconciliation. And meanwhile, there is that sliver of spending that represents right. the discretionary budget, a mere $1.5 trillion for operation of the government. And that looks like it's not going to happen 
as per usual. No, uh, that's another interesting thing that's changed. Uh, the Biden budget, essentially the rough outline for spending, didn't really come out until May. So lawmakers on the appropriations and budget committees acknowledge they're really in very early talks for this stage of the summer uh, getting underway. Uh, Alabama Senator Richard Shelby, the top Republican on the Appropriations Committee, he told Politico last week he does not see any possibility that Congress is going to meet the October 1st deadline. He says there's been a lot of uh, talks back and forth and a lot of other lawmakers have suggested that they've had talks. Again, I've been talking with Senator Tim Kaine, who's a member of the Budget Committee, so it's not as if nothing is happening, but it's it's clearly not happening as quickly as it normally does. So I think as we get close to that October 1st fiscal date, we're likely to hear those words like stopgap and continuing resolution once again, as we have for many, many years. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP, and there's going to be a hearing in the Senate on an issue that could make federal commuters interstate commuters. Yes, the Senate Homeland Security Committee is going to hold a hearing tomorrow on statehood legislation. Uh, D.C. again, of course, trying to become a state. Eleanor Holmes Norton, the D.C. delegate, will be speaking at that hearing. Now, the House, of course, has already passed this legislation. Eleanor Holmes Norton trying to build momentum on the Senate side. Obviously, a long, long way for this to go. But supporters of statehood really hope that this will, again, raise the profile of the issue, which has not really received a lot of attention in the Senate over the years. The House has had a lot of activity related to it. They've had hearings in the past about this, but this will be a really different type of hearing for statehood supporters. So they're really, frankly, pretty excited about it. Now, on the uh, downside for statehood, of course, the Senate is where statehood goes to die because Republicans have made it very, very clear that they will not support anything like this. They don't want the chance of another two senators who would likely be Democrats. Uh, So nonetheless, Democrats look to the fact that in the Senate they do have uh, roughly 40 co-sponsors, which is pretty high for them, but they still have a lot of work to do there. Once again, the name Joe Manchin, the West Virginia senator, among those who's in the middle of this, he recently indicated that he could potentially support statehood. So gradually, statehood supporters say they're continuing to build block by block their case for, for trying to get it down the line. Yeah, and there's no talk then of annexing D.C. to, say, Tacoma Park. Right. Otherwise. Right. I mean, there's there's occasionally, though, on the floor debates, you'll hear uh, a lawmaker say, hey, why doesn't Maryland just take back D.C.? And uh, and then the people from D.C. push back very hard. So it's interesting to watch the dynamic, because, uh, as you well know, the regional back and forth between Maryland, Virginia and D.C. all come together. And of course, we've had years and years of talks about the commuter tax that was uh, a big stumbling block for supporters of D.C. state for a long time. And in fact, it wasn't until relatively recently that House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer actually came on board with supporting statehood in recent years. All right. And just by the way, this holiday suddenly popped up on Friday, Juneteenth, and it became a, well, Juneteenth actually was Saturday, but Friday became a federal holiday. And uh, I had people cancel interviews because I'm not going to work today. How did that happen so fast? I'm still scratching my head. Yeah, that was really remarkable. I mean, even by congressional standards, uh, what triggered it was a change involving, of all things, Wisconsin Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Now you think, what does he have to do with Juneteenth, which, of course, the origins is in Texas. But he, for a long time, had objected to unanimous consent motions that would add Juneteenth as a federal holiday. 
holiday. And as you know, uh, in the Senate, it only takes one objecting lawmaker to stop things in its track. So he had stopped this for a long, long time. And then all of a sudden on Tuesday, he finally, after years of saying that he didn't want this for a lot of familiar reasons that uh, people have uh, opposed federal holidays in the past, saying that it's going to lower productivity, that federal workers won't be on the job, et cetera. He finally just said, you know, there's so much support uh, on both sides of the aisle that he would withdraw his objection to it. So, again, as you know, the Senate can move very quickly when it wants to. It can move very, very slowly on other issues. But once unanimous consent was passed, then boom, it went through on Tuesday evening. And then the House said, well, we're going to take this up right away. And they did. And on Wednesday, the House took it up with a relatively short debate. There were some objections some from Republicans, again, about the taxpayer issue, also some issues about what it was called. Uh, and then some people just said they wanted more regular order and that it should have gone through committee. But uh, obviously, it went through the House very, very quickly. And then the next day, President Biden signs it into law. A lot of people want Wondering, a lot of federal workers wondering, well, what does that mean? Does that mean it's going to happen right away? And sure enough, the uh, White House, uh, they issued the administration issued a statement saying, yes, this is going to go into effect on Friday. So lo and behold, we had this all happen within just basically about 72 hours. Yeah, the elephants and the donkeys can dance together, as you say, when they really want to. <laughs> That's right. Quite a sight, that is. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. As always, thanks so much. You bet. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is starting to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America, and certainly within me, uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to be uh, uh, to to lead in a way 
uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on those on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it, it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there've been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most. And that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future. Uh, 
for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's in an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service, uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort. Down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, um, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Hi, it's Kristen. Did you know that not doing things is easier than doing them? There's a lot of things to do, especially this time of year. But when you don't do things, there's more time to do things. Does that make sense? 
What I mean is when you use Shipt to get everything from gifts to groceries delivered same day, you have more time for the things you want to do. To not do things so that you can do other things, visit shipt.com slash holiday. That's S-H-I-P-T dot com slash holiday. Want your business to have the best opportunity for success? Take a tip from tech industry leader Intel when you move or expand in Ohio. The new Silicon Heartland is the place forward-thinking business leaders find ample talent, a highly ranked business climate, convenient central location, plus an especially low-risk environment for site selection. Where else can you have all the room you need to grow while rubbing elbows with the giants in your industry? Visit successinohio.com today.